We noted last Sunday in our prologue to Galatians that it would seem at some point during the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, while either in Athens or very soon upon arriving to Corinth, that he received, Paul received a disturbing bit of news, a report that the very group of heretics, false teachers that he had already dealt with in Antioch and in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, had now come to these churches in Galatia, churches that he had planted in these cities throughout this region. They had come questioning not just his apostolic authority, but these heretics were questioning the very nature of God's amazing grace. And in response to this report, and on account of the fact that it would be impossible for Paul to have dropped what he was presently doing and head immediately into the region of Galatia to address the issues in person, Paul instead pins a letter. He writes a letter to the Galatians to not only defend his apostolic authority, but to also reaffirm the true nature of God's amazing grace as being both the justification, our justification, and our sanctification. Now, those are two big churchy words, so I just very quickly want to define them because we'll reference them often as we're working through Galatians. Justification literally means to be seen by God just as if I'd justified, never sinned. Justification is the theological doctrine that explains how we, the sinner, become right with a holy God. Then you have this word sanctification, justification and sanctification, literally how we become sanctified, set apart, more holy, how our lives become godlier. You could define sanctification simply how we become more like Christ. Now, in regards to the severity of the stakes at hand, the stakes that demand Paul write to the Galatians to deal with this issue, Dr. Merrill Tenney, remarked that Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had it not been for Paul writing to the Galatians. Furthermore, it's been correctly stated the seriousness, the serious nature of Paul's letter that, quote, while Christianity may have been born in the cradle of Judaism, it ran the risk, if Paul didn't deal with the issue, it ran the risk of dying there. That Christianity would end up being just another sect of Judaism and it would have lost all appeal to the Gentile world. I like how J. Vernon McGee sets up Paul's approach to the Galatians. In his intro, his commentary, he writes, quote, the epistle contains no word of commendation, praise, or thanksgiving. There's no request for prayer, there's no mention of their standing in Christ. No one with him is mentioned by name. The heart of Paul, the apostle, is laid bare. There is deep emotion and strong feeling. This is his fighting epistle. He has his war paint on. He has no toleration for legalism. Someone has said that Romans comes from the head of Paul, while Galatians comes from his heart that Galatians takes up controversially what Romans puts systematically. In way of introduction, as you read through all the commentators 
and commentaries on Galatians, you'll, you'll discover that Galatians has some really cool nicknames. There's some really cool titles that have emerged concerning this little letter. As mentioned, J. Vernon McGee calls it the fighting epistle. I like this one. It's been called the Magna Carta of the early church. Some have referred to it as the charter of freedom. This might be my favorite. The impregnable citadel. I don't even know what that means. I just really like the way it sounds. (laughs) Some have called it Galatians, the manifesto of Christian liberty. The The church's, the Christian's declaration of independence. The Declaration of Emancipation from Legalism. That's a mouthful. And finally, some have called it the masthead of the Reformation. For students of history, it should be pointed out how Paul's letter to the Galatians has been instrumental in changing the hearts of the men who've changed and impacted our world. The very idea presented in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, that the just shall live by faith. Do you realize that verse singularly sparked a reformation in the heart of a man named Martin Luther that then spawned a reformation throughout the church? Not only was Galatians Martin Luther's favorite book, he'd go far as to say this, quote, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. Catherine was his wife. Not only Luther, but this letter was also a favorite of both John Wesley, who was a key figure in the Great Awakening in Britain and the Americas, as well as a man by the name of Wilbur Wilberforce, who was the central and driving figure and the abolishment of the slave trade. J. Vernon McGee also notes in his commentary that Galatians is, quote, the backbone and background for every great spiritual movement and revival. Galatians has made an impact. To this point, James Montgomery Boyce commenting on the lasting impact of Paul's letter to the Galatians, the impact it's had since the Reformation. He says, quote, not many books have made such a lasting impression on men's minds as the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, nor have many done so much to shape the history of the Western world. If you're a note taker, Galatians can be outlined as follows. And and full disclosure, I did not come up with this. It was too perfect uh, to just steal, so I'm going to give him credit. I'm, gonna, I'm taking this from Pastor John Corson. It's just a great, simple three-point outline for the book of Galatians. I didn't come up with this. I'm stealing it from him, but giving him credit, although he probably stole it from uh, Warren Wearsby, but that's something else. You could divide it. You could divide the book this way, three sections. Chapters one and two, Paul's personal experience with grace. Paul's personal experience with grace. Chapters 3 and 4, you could title Paul's doctrinal instruction about grace. And then chapters 5 and 6 can be titled Paul's practical application of grace. Paul's personal experience with grace, his doctrinal instruction about grace, his practical application of grace. It's 
too perfect to just invent my own way of saying the same thing. Verse 1, chapter 1, let's dive into the book. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, right from the beginning, right from the onset, Paul immediately seeks to address those questioning his apostleship. He's made it clear right from his intro that he was, quote, not an apostle from men and that no man had sent him as an apostle. Nor was he an apostle, quote, through man. And what he means by that is that there was no institution that had commissioned him. Instead, Paul gloriously declares that he was an apostle. Why? Not because man had sent him or an institution had called him, but instead that Jesus had called him and commissioned him and sent him to be one. In a sense, Paul is making it clear that this book, this letter, is not him sharing his thoughts or his musings, his opinions. Because right from the beginning, he sets his authority as coming from Jesus and Jesus alone, what Paul is saying is that he's equally now speaking under Jesus' authority. This letter, it's not coming from the authority of man or the authority of an institution. It's coming from the authority of Jesus himself. He continues, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins. I love it. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's evident that Paul is wasting no time getting right to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue as to why he's writing to these Galatians, he says, I'm an apostle by Jesus, deal with it, and grace. That's the first word. His first word embodied the entire message. In the Greek, this word grace or charis simply means favor. It should be noted that the word itself comes from a Greek abbreviation, meaning to rejoice. And 156 times that this word is used in the New Testament, grace, always takes on a redemptive quality whereby it describes an act of God where God avails his favor to people who patently don't deserve it. Some have defined the biblical concept of grace as unmerited favor. I like that. Others have more creatively defined grace using the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's cute. A.W. Tozer provided a more extensive, kind of heavier definition by describing grace as the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Pastor John MacArthur added saying that grace is the free and benevolent influence of a holy God operating sovereignly in the lives of undeserving sinners. 
It's a fancy way of saying it's God's unmerited favor. Now, notice the order of Paul's immediate intro. He says, grace and peace. You know, it's not an accident that every time we find this coupling, grace and peace, the order's always the same. 13 times in Paul's letters, he will say grace and peace. In each of the Apostle Peter's letters, 1 Peter 1-2 and 2 Peter 1-2, the Apostle says grace and peace. Once by John, 2 John 1 verse 3, that Apostle says grace and peace. And then Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, greeted the church saying grace and peace. Please understand, it is impossible for a person to experience the peace of God until they first fully experience the grace of God. The order is not an accident. It's significant. Grace must always come before peace. For if any salvation or sanctification has a basis in a person's works or their merit, their achievement, Lasting peace is simply unattainable. It's when you grasp God's unmerited favor that I don't have to work for it, that I don't have to earn it, that I just have to receive it, that heart can be flooded with an unspeakable peace. Friend, the only way, the only way you can truly have peace in your life is when you first find rest in God's amazing grace. Also note that according to Paul, both grace and peace are not something that a man can provide for himself or that he can attain or he can create. Grace and peace are something that must be given. By whom? By God alone. They both, grace and peace, originate in him before they're extended to us. Paul says, grace and peace from whom? God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Neither God's favor nor God's peace can be earned or found or discovered apart from God's willingness to give them to us. On a side note, if you're tired, you know what I mean by tired? You're just wore out from what we call the rat race of life. Aside from that, if if religiously you're just burnt out, trying to earn the approval of God when you constantly and consistently fall short of that standard. If you're wore out trying to, to do good of the striving and the fighting and the failing, please realize the human soul, your soul, will never find peace apart from the grace of God. After introducing us to the bestower of grace and peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul continues by immediately explaining how it is that Jesus has both the authority and the ability to bestow grace and peace, God's favor and his peace. We're told that Jesus, quote, gave himself for our sins. It's critically important right from the beginning that you understand a very simple concept. 
It's a simple concept, but it's one overlooked. It's one ignored by most people. No man can accept a savior for sins unless he first acknowledges he sins. I, I know that seems very elementary, my dear Watson, but, it, it, but it's one of those things that it is an important concept. No man can accept a savior for sin unless he's willing to first acknowledge he's a sinner. It's only logical that before there can be any remedy or proposed solution, there must first be the existence and assumed recognition of a problem. Honestly, I have found that many people fail to accept Jesus as Savior. They're more interested in, in embracing Jesus as like a loving friend, or a moral example, or even a gracious God, because they refuse to see themselves for what they actually are. Do you know what you are? Fundamentally, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And since this is the tragic case, there are many people today who subsequently fail to encounter Jesus for who he want, for what he most wants to be known as, and that's a savior. Jesus can be your friend. Jesus can be your God. He can be a moral example. But more than anything else, he wants to relate to you as a savior. But that's only possible if you're willing to admit you're a sinner. If you're willing to admit that you've fallen short of the person that God created you to be. Understand, Jesus might love you just the way that you are, but that doesn't mean he loves the way that you are. Let me say that again, just, it's simple but profound. Jesus might love you just the way that you are, but that doesn't mean he loves the way that you are. Sadly, there are so many people today who misinterpret Jesus' love for the person as then his acceptance of that person's condition. Sure, Jesus loves you even though you're a fallen, broken, messed up creature. But that doesn't mean Jesus is content to leave you a fallen, broken, messed up creature. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said of himself, his mission statement, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because, and this is why, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. That, that's a change. To proclaim liberty to those who are held captive, recovery of sight to those who are blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Understand, Jesus enters your life for a purpose, a big purpose, a main purpose, to change you. He loves you. He died for you as you are. That's true. He doesn't judge. He redeems but he's not content to leave you that way. His plan is to change you, to make you into something new, something better, to transform you, to restore you, to make you into the very thing that you're not. So much so that he was willing to, quote, give himself in order to deal with the root of your problem, your sin. Let me clarify something. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. 
I, I, once again, I'll repeat it. Simple, but you got to kind of wrap your brain around it. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Like the fundamental problem with man boils down to not his activity, but his heart. It's his heart that's the problem. A heart condition, a fallen state. And by the way, that makes the tinkering of one's behavior frivolous and very ineffective because your problem is not your behavior. Your behavior is a byproduct of your problem. It's your heart. You see, what man needs more than anything else is not a set of religious codes aimed at refining or cleaning up his behavior. What man needs more than anything else is a savior willing to completely atone for sin, impart an alien righteousness, and able to permanently transform the very nature of one's heart. What you need, friend, more than anything else, is first a debt to be paid that you can't pay. It's called atonement. Then you need your core problem addressed, the redemption of the heart and the mind and the soul, and a lasting remedy imparted. The regeneration of your core desires brought about by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus gave himself for our sins. That, that phrase is interesting. And, and you know, when, when I was reading through it, the first thing that popped into the mind, John 3.16, right? John 3.16, we're told what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And no doubt that describes the love of God the Father towards us. And yet in this passage, we're told that it was Jesus who gave himself. That Jesus and his love for us was a willing and able participant that he wanted to lay down his life to pay for our sins, your sin and my sin. And why would Jesus want to do this? The answer, look at the text. Quote, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. That he might deliver us. In the Greek, this word deliver, it means to pluck out, to choose, to, to rescue. My, my favorite definition of this is literally to deliver in the sense to liberate. To liberate us from what? He died to liberate us, quote, from this present evil age. While there is no doubt that Jesus died on the cross to save us from sin and the ultimate judgment of hell, what this text tells us is that Jesus' pressing need, the pressing desire, the pressing want, his pressing intention and giving himself for your sin was to liberate you from this fallen, wicked condition that dominates the world we live in. We often talk about salvation as the golden ticket to heaven that keeps me out of hell, but salvation is so much more. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could go to heaven. He died on the cross so that you could have life today and that more abundantly. The Bible in discussing how we're saved, it uses three different tense, that we were saved, a, a past work where our sin was paid for. But then the Bible says we're being saved, 
from this present evil age, this, this current towards destruction, and then we will be saved from eternal judgment. Jesus died on the cross, not, not to do something in your life later. He died on the cross to liberate you today. Verse six, Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you and the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. I marvel. Like this phrase, it indicates speed, surprise. It literally, Paul's saying, I'm shocked. Like I don't even get it. How quickly you're turning away from him. Now, the pressing question is, what were they turning from? They were turning away from Jesus. This phrase, turning away, this English translation, it, it actually doesn't, doesn't do much for it. Um, in the Greek, it's so much stronger. Like, Paul's not saying that these Galatians were leaving Jesus or drifting from sliding away. No, 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 no. What Paul is saying is he's saying, I marvel that you are abandoning Jesus. Like he, literally he accuses them of being traitors, turncoats. He charges them with desertion. Deserting whom? Jesus, the one who gave himself. Now you gotta ask yourself, right? Like, how does such a drastic thing like that happen to a group of people who have at one point tasted the gospel, they have experienced the gospel, they've come to the cross of Christ? And here's the answer. The answer is, how does something like this, how in the world is it possible for someone to abandon Jesus, to desert Jesus? It's simple. Anyone is capable of desertion when they base their relationship with Jesus on anything other than his grace. That's how it happens. The grace of Christ. Keep in mind, Paul, he says these Galatians were departing from Jesus and the saving and transforming power of his grace to what he calls a different gospel, which he then makes clear isn't really a different, it's, or it's not even really another he just kind of gets to the point, he's like, it's perverted. It's a perversion, a distortion. No, this word different, different gospel. In the Greek, that word doesn't mean that it was, it's one of the same kind. It's the opposite, that it's not of the same kind. What Paul is saying when he uses this phrase, different gospel, is that it wasn't a gospel. That it, that it wasn't actually even an effective alternative. It was a perversion, a distortion. Whereas the true gospel gloriously bases our favor with God and the continuance of that favor solely upon his grace, period. These false teachers, these men who had come to these churches were perverting the nature of grace by formulating and teaching, by peddling a twisted replacement gospel. Or anti-gospel. And this morning, I want to just kind of lay out three ways that people distort the gospel of grace. We touched on them ever so briefly in our intro 
this morning we're going to expound upon them. First, there is what we'll call and refer to as the anti-gospel of grace and do these things. This position states that I'm saved and sanctified by grace and the things I do. Sadly, there are many people who see the true nature of the gospel. Grace, period. Not my involvement at all as kind of being too good to be true. I mean, I mean, how could it honestly be, right, that God's favor would require nothing of me? That his favor is designed to be received, not earned. That the process of, of even becoming like Jesus occurs independent of me and my works or my disciplines. Because the idea of grace, period, is such an affront to a person's pride. Such an affront to a person's sense of self-sufficiency. While this individual might accept God's saving grace, they end up establishing for themselves a religious code. To what end? For what purpose? They set up for themselves a religious code by which they can either seek to earn God's favor or at least do this. Prove themselves worthy. You know, to accomplish this they end up substituting the gospel of grace for what we'll call the three R's of religion. Their relationship with God is grace and their obedience to rules. They list a bunch of rules, things you have to do, things you have to, to, to engage in, to be obedient concerning, to show God how much you deserve his favor. How seriously you take his favor. Works, grace, and what we do, rules. The second R is regulations. And we set up regulations after rules to help us obey the rules. You know, we, we have the rules, but that's not, so we set up some regulations just to help make sure I obey the rules the right way. You know, and we saw this with the Pharisees, right? God said, keep the Sabbath day holy, right? Just take a day off. That was a rule. And then what happened? The Pharisees are like, well, we need to set up all these regulations to make sure that we define what work is because we're not supposed to work. And so they set up all these regulations to help obey the rules they were to obey. But then that wasn't enough, right? Because what if obeying the regulations to help obey the rules wasn't good enough? Like what if we missed something? Which is why they set up rituals. You know, the final R, things that we can kind of do above and beyond to show our piety and devotion to God. And yet, here's the problem. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace and the good things I do for God, my service for God, my religious works before God, then you not only fail to fully understand grace, but you're saying Jesus' death and his resurrection are not enough. There's a second way, second anti-gospel, way we distort grace and that is, if the first is grace and do these things, the second is grace, but don't do these things. And in a sense, th this position says, I'm saved by grace, but I'm sanctified. I, I become more like Christ by the things I refrain from doing. Once again, there are many people who simply see the true nature of the gospel as being too good to be true, 
but they warp it in an entirely different way. While God's favor is designed to be initially received, these individuals fall into the burden of seeing God's continued favor as something they now need to maintain. By my grace, we'll enter into this relationship, but now it's on you to keep the relationship going. You know what I mean? And you need to show me that you're worth it, that you're good for it. Sure, while they'll concede that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, they see human involvement as being essential to becoming godly. You got to forgo all these things to be seen by God as right. And, and, and as a result of this outlook, what ends up happening? Yes, their relationship with Jesus is foundationally based on his grace, but they believe it's fostered and deepened by things that they're willing to give up, sacrifices they're willing to make for Jesus. Sadly, what's produced is a wicked form of Christian legalism that establishes a moral structure and a church culture that demands liberties to forgo and things to be sacrificed in order to be a better Christian in the place of simply emphasizing the enjoyment and the freedom that comes with a personal relationship with Jesus, a relationship founded upon nothing but his amazing grace. Though God's favor is given at the cross, many who hold this grace but position believe that God will be more pleased with a person when they abstain from doing things. Grace but don't drink. Grace but don't dance. Grace but don't watch R-rated movies. Grace but only listen to Christian music. Grace but do all these other things. Basically don't have any fun and God will be more pleased with you. Grace, but, but once again, when anyone says they've been saved by grace, but are sanctified by anything other than his grace, they're distorting the very nature of the gospel. You see, if you, the basis of your relationship with Jesus, what initiates it and maintains it is grace, but the things you refrain from doing, and the sacrifices you make for him, then you not only fail to fully understand what grace is all about, but you're also saying that the death of Jesus and his resurrection are, in, are insufficient. Thirdly, there is this anti-gospel. You have grace and do these things. Grace, but refrain from doing these things. The third is grace, so I can do anything. This position states, I'm saved and sanctified by grace, so there's no restrictions now on the things that I can do. And here's the irony. While these people do understand the freeing nature of grace, it's true. You can do anything as God's favor is provided independent of the individual. They also subsequently distort grace in an entirely different way than the previous two. Instead of grace doing what it's supposed to, yielding greater holiness, a sanctified life, grace is seen as a license for whatever goes. It's kind of like that Bud Light commercial. 
Whatever goes, man. It's grace. Like unmerited favor in place of sin. Plus Jesus' complete forgiveness concerning sin is now viewed as an unrestricted permit to sin. It's what, what I'll just call the Romans 6, 1 mentality, where Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You ever run into someone that will say, hey man, I, I'm sinning so that God can just give me more grace. Okay, cool. Here's the deal. While it's true that if you're worried, grace can become a license for sin, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. It's equally true that if you see grace as a license to sin, you also have an equally distorted and perverted view of grace. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace so I can do whatever I want, then you not only fail to fully understand grace, but you're actually now making a mockery of the death and resurrection of Jesus. To those who take the Romans 6.1 approach, I would just encourage you to read the next verse. For Paul says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, if you truly grasp the true gospel of grace, not and, not but, not so, but grace, period, nothing comes after you will understand that being saved and sanctified by grace, it transforms who I am. It changes my heart. It changes what I want to do. When I'm in a relationship with Jesus, my desires have changed to please him, not me. I don't live to please Jesus because I have to. That would be a distortion but I live to please Jesus because I want to. In conclusion, I'm struck by something Paul says in his intro. You might have missed it initially. He affirms, look at it, there are some who, and then kind of skip a few words, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Like what Paul is saying here is that these distortions of grace do not occur by accident. Instead, they occur intentionally. It's quite a provocative statement. Like we must ask, why would anyone want to pervert the true nature of God's amazing grace, period, in any of these other ways? Grace and, or grace but, or grace so. Let me give you the answer. While all three distortions are different in their own right, there is one commonality. Me. You see, a central component of the true nature of grace is that it takes the power completely out of my hands. The truth is that grace and this model, it's appealing why? It's appealing because it affords my involvement in the procuring of God's favor. I can do something to feel good about myself, do something to take pride in. Jesus' work on the cross and me. 
We're doing it together. Tag team. Which is as silly as, as playing like a pickup game of two on two. I'm five foot eight and can jump about that high. Okay, hand-eye coordination. Basically, any of you could beat me at basketball. But if I'm with LeBron James, we'll destroy you. Like, it doesn't matter. But how silly is it for me to be like, yeah, me and LeBron, man, we took everybody down. No, dude, you just stood there and threw the ball to him. And then he went and dunked it over everybody. And then you got the ball and you threw it back to him. Anytime you tried to take a dribble, they took it from you. Because you're 5'8 and white, dude. Like, your job is just to take the ball and throw it to LeBron. But it would be silly to be like, me and LeBron, dude, we destroyed everybody. What? Stupid. I had nothing to do with it. And yet we like that, right? We like this, this grace and. Because, yeah, okay, Jesus did his thing on the cross. Cool, right? But I, I have a role. Grace and. It lets me be involved. The grace but model is also appealing. Because it enables me to maintain a sense of moral superiority with my fellow man. You know how the moral basis of the grace but model works? It's this. It's, man, I'm saved by grace, but, man, I got God's favor because I'm better than that person. See, I'm not doing these things that they're doing, and that makes me so, God so much more pleased with me than you. It feeds my own ego. It feeds my own pride. I could say grace, but, and still maintain a sense of superiority because of the sacrifices that I make that are more than yours. I mean, I know what movie you went and go see. I'd never go see a movie like that, so Jesus loves me more. What? Like, where do you get that? That's a distortion. It's a perversion. But what it does is we want to do that because it gives us an allowance to compare ourselves with others, to feel better about ourselves. And then there's the grace so model. And why is it appealing? Why do people pervert and distort grace in that way? <laughs> because when it's all said and done, it allows me to remain in control of me. I can do whatever I want. Jesus gave me license. He set me free. And man, I'm a free bird doing what I want. There is an appeal, isn't there? You see, the reality is that the true gospel of grace, period, is deeply offensive to our human nature. Why? Because it's an insult to our pride and it denigrates self. Fundamentally, grace, period, declares that I'm a sinner, broken, lost and in need of a savior, that I'm in need of being saved, that there is nothing that I can do to fix myself, to save myself, to earn God's favor, to make myself any better than I am. There's nothing I can do to save me. And then you know what else it does? When I'm saved, if it's grace, period, grace alone, grace is enough, that gives me no room now for me to take credit for it. 
I can't save myself. And then when I'm saved, I can't even take credit for it. Yes, that is grace, period. Grace alone. It's all about Jesus and nothing to do with about you. And to me, I find that liberating. Sadly, what Paul has to say about grace and how he addresses these distortions and this little letter to the Galatians is of such relevance today. Because you know what? If we're honest this morning, if, if we'll all just have a moment of clarity, haven't we all been guilty of distorting grace in some way? Isn't there something within each of us, a need within each of us to pervert grace ever so slightly so that I can be involved, so that I can get in the midst, so that I can get into the middle? This morning, as we transition to worship and we come to the table, I want to give you this question. I want you to think about this question. Is your relationship with Jesus, your favor with God, and the continuance of these things based on anything but the true gospel of grace, period?